0: Welcome to Powered by How, where thought leaders and industry leaders come together to discuss the technological solutions being developed to build a more sustainable energy sector. This podcast series is brought to you by Reuters Plus in partnership with Aramco, a leading global energy producer. Today, we're going to focus on carbon capture and storage, a seemingly tantalizing technology which has never quite fulfilled its promise. Is that about to change? Well, according to the International Energy Agency, coal-burning power plants account for about 40% of worldwide carbon emissions, and that's why efforts to curb greenhouse gases have largely focused on the search for clean energy, such as wind or solar power. But human emissions are now so vast, many analysts think it's unlikely these technologies alone will be sufficient. What could make a difference is large-scale capture of carbon emissions, compressing and storing carbon in deep geological formations. Carbon capture, utilization, and storage is cited as one of the most important emission reduction technologies in the IEA's net zero by 2050 roadmap, and could account for up to a fifth of global emission reduction requirements. Here to discuss the opportunities and challenges of CCUS, I'm joined by Dr. Tijani Nias, who leads Aramco's Mission Innovation Carbon Capture Challenge and is Senior Sustainability Strategist for Aramco. We're also joined by Dr. Prathima Rangarajan, CEO of OGCI Climate Investments, which has backed a number of CCUS projects. From Washington, D.C., we have Jared Daniels, CEO of the Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute, a leading advocacy body. And we have Dr. Sarah Soltzer, Managing Director of the Stanford Center for Carbon Storage and the Stanford Carbon Removal Initiative. Welcome to you all. I'd like to start by asking each of you to describe in just a few words what brought you to this field, carbon capture, utilization, and storage. It's quite a mouthful. And let's start with you, Jared.
1: Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. I've spent my entire career working at the nexus of energy and environmental concerns. Energy certainly powers humankind. And uh, over the last 20 years, the focus on climate change and climate change mitigation, all of the climate math suggests that CCS is an absolutely critical component of an all of the above solution to get us from where we are today to where we need to be in a more sustainable realm. And that is why I'm working to progress carbon capture and storage.
0: Thank you. And how about you, Johnny?
2: I have started my career as a scientist uh, around 2000, and my first assigned project was carbon capture through oxycombustion, which uses pure oxygen instead of air to burn, uh, to combust difficult to burn fuels such as heavy residues and generate uh, highly concentrated CO2 streams that can be easily uh, uh, captured. Since then, I have been uh, somehow, uh, uh, involved in CCS technology, uh, but what with, a uh, uh, much broader scope looking at, you know, what we can do at a regional level or at international level to get te- the technology to the marketplace. So I have been working extensively with oil and gas climate initiative and many international CCS initiatives. I strongly believe that this is the missing piece of puzzle of the, uh, in the climate discussion today. As we build more renewable capacity, as we have more efficient energy efficiency, uh, we need to get CCS also at the same level of deployment to make sure that we get to where we want to be uh, in the second half of this uh, uh, century.
0: Sarah, you run this big multidisciplinary institute at Stanford. Have you always been an academic?
3: No, actually, I worked for a major oil company for 25 years, and I wanted to bring my subsurface experience to help address uh, the challenge of uh, climate change. And Stanford University is a great place to do just that.
0: So you're looking at this from a scientific point of view?
3: Absolutely. But we also look at things on the regulatory and uh, policy point of view as well.
0: Pratham how do you see strategies to bringing down the overall cost of the energy transition? And where do CCUS and other carbon capture technologies fit into this? Well, Nisha,
4: we're in a period where everybody's talking about the energy trilemma, where we don't have enough energy, so it's very expensive for people. At the same time, the energy and our manufacturing processes are creating all this carbon dioxide and methane that is terrible for climate. And that cycle, you know, as you get hotter, we use more energy and the cycle gets worse. So it's very important for us to focus in on solutions that solve both the energy security issues as well as climate issues. And for that, there's some really low hanging fruit that are lower cost and can be done immediately. The first of these is methane emissions. You know, if you look at anthropogenic, which is man-made methane emissions, imagine you could cut that by half. That actually looks after the gas needs of the United Kingdom, Italy, Germany, and France, just by cutting our methane emissions in half because that's all natural gas that's being emitted. It also saves $100 billion, and it saves five gigatons of CO2, equivalent of emissions. It's a win-win situation. The second area that we can reduce, uh, we can affect very quickly, is around energy efficiency. Most industrial processes are extremely inefficient. In fact, if you look at primary energy, two thirds of it is wasted. So if we focused in just of making our current systems more efficient in terms of the resources they use, that's a huge productivity increase for us and it saves both energy and saves climate now this doesn't stop us from doing longer term projects projects that take a lot of infrastructure and ccus is the first that comes to mind of course because we neither efficiency efficiency measures aren't going to take us 100 of the way and so we need to capture that carbon and we need to store it because we can't allow it to go into the atmosphere we will not achieve Our targets from a climate perspective without CCUS and it's actually point source carbon capture is the most effective because these are concentrated sources so very very important and behind that comes hydrogen and direct air capture but CCUS is critical it's number three in our book and we have to do them all in parallel we've run out of time.
0: Sarah about your work at Stanford. It focuses on the physics and the geochemistry of CO2 storage. Um, you've said in the past that CCS is critical to reducing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but how effective could it be? What levels of CO2 reduction could it realistically deliver?
3: Ah, uh, well, um, we've got a big problem ahead of us, and um, with uh, current CO2 levels, we need to reduce our emissions. Um, There are many ways to do that. We can look at efficiency improvements. We can look at fuel transformations. But CCS also needs to play a role. Um, And it's just part of a big picture and a part of a number of technologies that we need to bring um, into into play to uh, satisfy this. And uh, actually, Jared can speak to some of the things that are in their um, annual CCS report. But right now, we have 27 uh, CCS projects up and running uh, across the globe, but we need more like 2000 of them by 2050. So it's it's going to play a big role. Uh, everything else is needed as well, but we absolutely need CCS.
0: So CCS could play a big role if it really achieves liftoff. So I'm going to ask Kijani, why has it taken so long to achieve liftoff? It's not exactly a new technology. You said at the start you yourself have been working on it one way or another for a very long time. It's only just beginning to get traction what are the barriers to entry? Why is it taking so long? The most
2: important in my view is that the lack of recognition of CCS value. People mostly focus on CCS as a means to preserve uh, the use of fossil uh, energy while CCS can bring much more value. CCS could help in decarbonizing heavy industry including cement, iron steel, chemicals and many others where and solutions are not available. CCS can help also removing CO2 from the atmosphere, contributing to global carbon balance and net zero. And also, which has uh, another social dimension, is that CCS actually can help in maintaining and creating new jobs in industrial clusters, contributing to uh, economic growth through new low-carbon businesses, such as hydrogen, low-carbon products, and CCS services.
0: Okay, Tijani, so I just want to get a response from Jared now. As Tijani said, governments have been very slow to recognize and support um, carbon capture as a practical technology for a a long time. But in the last couple of years, we've seen a plethora of announcements with all sorts of governments across the world lining up saying this is the future. So um, what's changed? Is it because utilization is now seen as important? Is it because these hard to decarbonize sectors are seen as important? Tijani's mentioned all sorts of different things.
1: You know, it's a a great question. I think it's in line with the broader conversation in terms of the focus on climate change mitigation at large that we've seen renewed focus and momentum from a number of governments and countries around the world, right? Really taking off catalytically uh, starting in 2015 in, in Paris. Um, And so I think the approach and the new momentum we've seen in CCS is part of that. Historically, as to Johnny mentioned, uh, much of the conversation around CCS was on uh, and as a technology that could decarbonize coal-fired power in the stationary power sector. And I think as people realize the diversity and flexibility of CCS, they've realized that it is uh, a unique technology that has... Broad applicability to help decarbonize all aspects of uh, society. That we need uh, stationary power for coal and gas-fired power generation, cement and steel, and fertilizers and plastics manufacture. You know industries that society will continue to need, uh, but we don't need the emissions. And so CCS can is about the only technology that can at scale provide the deep decarbonization uh, that all the climate math says we must accomplish in those carbon intensive industries. Um, it also can help support build out of hydrogen infrastructure with low carbon hydrogen produced from uh, hydrocarbons integrated with carbon capture uh, utilization and storage and that can be part of the feature as well um, and then it also enables carbon dioxide removal right direct air capture bioenergy with ccs negative you know uh, emission terms if you will in the overall climate math that most of the models uh, now say um, is going to be required in our future if we are going to get from where we are to net zero or sustainability. So I think the renewed focus we see on CCS is because of that flexibility that it affords. And again, all the climate math says it needs to be an appropriate part of and all of the above solution in addition to as much penetration of renewables in the stationary power sector, in addition to as much efficiency as we can get across humanity, um, all of the above, including uh, a healthy amount of CCS.
0: Sarah, so a big prize would be if we could uh, turn captured carbon, not just into a waste product, burying it away in depleted oil fields or porous rocks, but recycling it, reusing it so that it's an essential component in other industries, maybe even in the energy transition, for instance, hydrogen production. It sounds very cool, but how viable is it?
3: Oh, it's absolutely viable. There are many uses for carbon. The issue is we're going to have so much CO2 that we need to capture that not only if we can monetize it in some useful way, should we do that, but we're also going to need to sequester um, quite a bit of it in geologic form. So, for example, there are ways to sequester it in concrete, um, things like that. That's great. All of those are excellent. And all of those are ways to monetize any captured CO2. It's just that with the volumes we're dealing with, we also need to, to store it in geologic formations.
0: And that's a question that's been at the back of my mind and I haven't put to you, Sarah, how safe is CCS really and, and how permanent is it as a solution? Will the carbon dioxide put into depleted oil fields actually stay there forevermore?
3: Absolutely. Um, As as has been said a few times so far, we've been um, injecting CO two into the subsurface since the sixties and seventies. So we absolutely know how to do it. Now, typically, it has been injected to push out oil and gas, but that doesn't need to occur. It can also be injected into the subsurface and stay there permanently, just like oil and gas has migrated into spots in the subsurface where the geology has held it in place for millions and millions of years, the same exact things can happen if we inject CO2 into the subsurface, as long as we put it in in places that um, meet the geologic conditions that we need to have. And one of the things that we do at the Stanford Center for Carbon Storage is we look at both, um, we try to understand flow physics, we look at how to best monitor um, CO2 plumes in the subsurface, subsurface to understand where they're going and how they're moving. Um, we look at geochemistry, geomechanics, and we really want to understand what happens to that CO2 in the subsurface, as well as what are the risks? What are the risks for leakage? What are the risks for things like induced seismicity? We try to understand all of that so that we can ensure that it is safely injected and it will stay there and it will not cause any adverse effects.
0: Jared, is this a question you have to deal with often? Does it actually work? Does it actually permanently sort out the CO2 problem?
1: Yeah, we get all kinds of questions, and, and always happy to have this conversation. Co, you know, CCS absolutely does work. We have proven this. It's been operating successfully for a number of decades on a number of applications, so there's no question, does the technology exist and work well? Is it safe? Absolutely, it's safe. Uh, one of the questions I get a number of uh, times is, well, what about CO2 storage, and is that safe? And, and I think the answer is absolutely yes, That is that is safe. Um, There are government regulations that are specifically written um, to ensure the safety and permanence of CO2 storage in the subsurface. And as some of the other panelists have said, you know, hydrocarbons and CO2 itself has been stored geologically uh, underground for millions of years, and uh, when you choose a site appropriately as driven by regulations, um, there is no doubt in my mind that we can safely and permanently store large volumes of CO2 safely for geologic times. Um, in a geologic sense for the mitigation of climate change.
0: Pratima Rangarajan, OGCI's first investment in 2017 in this field was in Net Zero Teesside in the UK, one of the UK's first CCUS hubs to capture emissions from several industrial power and hydrogen emitters and store them in the North Sea. So having gained experience now over the last few years in developing this hub, what would you say are the main lessons you have learned? Well. Nisha, at that time,
4: we started in 2017. It was our first, very first investment and there were no policy structures anywhere. The UK had tried already three times to create CCS projects, had failed, and people were pretty bleak about the prospects. But that's why we're called a catalyst fund. Our job is to go where others perhaps haven't been yet or succeeded yet. Um, So we started this little project it is a part of something called the East Coast Cluster that will save up to 20 million tons of carbon dioxide per year by 2030. Uh, first carbon injection is expected in 2026, and the UK government really named it one of its first two hubs to get operational by the end of this decade. So started bleak looks fantastic today, but it's a story of collaboration. And if there is any lessons learned, it is that. We spoke to the UK government, uh, the department, is called Bayes, the department, and we spent a lot of time walking them through what we're doing. And they said, hey, can we learn some more? So essentially every month we walked the government, uh, bureaucrats who, were, who are extremely smart and knowledgeable through all our modeling. And we shared with them completely all the data we had on costs, efficiencies, everything we knew, and they'd come back to us and say, What about this? Or what about that? And what if we didn't have power? We were unbiased in this as a as just a developer, because our mandate is to get CCS up and running. Our mandate was not to push a bias, right? So that was one collaboration that worked very, very well. And, and uh, I think it taught us a lot about how to work with governments. Today, the strategy you see comes out of those discussions. It was an unbelievably good collaboration. I've never been part of something like that. Big learning for us.
0: I know Aramco has been working um, for some years now on just that, capturing carbon and trying to put it into geological formations. Where have you got to? What's the scope for expansion? What have been the stumbling blocks?
2: We have been operating uh, one of the region's largest CCS facilities since 2015, capturing and storing up to 0.8 million tonnes of CO2 uh, every year. Uh, so this is one of the most advanced uh, CO2 enhanced oil recovery uh, uh, projects in the world, which has more than 1,000 seismic sensors to monitor the CO2 plume to monitor how CO2 behave in uh, in, uh, in our reservoirs and then get at some uh, scientific data uh, for better understanding how we can store CO2. I have to stress that this is not being done for production purpose. So this is still a research project, OK, because most of our reservoirs are very young and producing at a very high uh, rate. But we are preparing ourselves to understand better how CO2 behave in geological formations, including in uh, oil and gas uh, reservoirs. So it's a way of optimizing uh, CO2 sequestration and also uh, enhance oil uh, 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 recoveries. So the cumulative CO2 injected and stored these days will be around uh, around, uh, 7 million tonnes of CO2 since 2015.
0: So can you put that into some kind of context for us then? Um, in terms of what you've achieved, where you're trying to get to, what is the potential? Were you expecting to achieve more by now?
2: Yeah. So I would say this was a necessary step for us to build a large-scale power plant in uh, in our operations. But and uh, and and we have generated enough knowledge for us now to think of a larger-scale CCS facility, which is being developed being developed in the eastern province of saudi arabia which is going to be a ccs hub okay but again you know we capture 0.8 million tons of co2 per year gerard will tell you that you know today we have at the global scale a capacity of 40 million tons around 40 million tons of co2 captured and stored if every year and there is a good a healthy pipeline of a more than 100 projects with the potential to capture more than 100 million tons of co2 and store them underground before 2030. Uh, this is just the beginning, I think, uh, because if you look at the uh, what IEA is saying in their net zero report, we need to capture and store up to 7.6 billion tons of CO2 by 2050. So to put that in perspective, so it means that the world would have to build a CCS facility that capture and store 1 million tons of CO2 per year every day for the next 20 years. So this is a huge challenge for the industry, but at the same time also a great opportunity, which is worth trillions of US dollars, creating thousands of jobs uh, across many, many, many regions. So that's really the, uh, uh, the game that we have to get into uh, uh, from CCS.
0: Something we haven't discussed yet is cost, because CCS is seriously expensive. So, I'm going to ask Sarah Saltzer to address this, both with your geoengineering hat on and your looking at it from an economic point of view. Where does the cost lie in the process? Is it to do with the capturing? Is it to do with the transport? Is it to do with the storage? Is it to do with the reuse? Give us some insights into that. Yeah,
3: it, the the issue with cost is it's mainly on the capture side, and it depends on what it is you're capturing the emissions from. If you're capturing at a rather pure stream where there's a lot of CO2 in the emission stream and not much else, like an ethanol plant, then the capture cost can be quite quite low relatively, you know, $20 to $30 per ton of CO2. But then you start going to places like um, refineries or um, cogeneration plants or um, power plants, and the cost per ton can go up significantly to like $80 a ton or even more. Um, So that's that's where most of the cost is actually coming from. Transportation, um, it sort of depends on how close you are to your sequestration site, where you're ultimately going to store it, and whether a pipeline exists. Um, pipeline costs aren't all that high, however, and so that's not really a huge driver of the costs. But if there is no pipeline, building a pipeline could actually be quite um, a formidable task. And Can you actually use
0: existing pipelines, sorry to interrupt, uh, Sarah, or do you have yeah, to oh. rebuild
3: from scratch? Um, well, CO2 is quite corrosive. So sometimes you can reuse a pipeline or put in liners, but sometimes it'll probably require a new, uh, uh, a new built uh, type of pipeline. And then the, um, the last thing is on the storage side. And in the scheme of things, storage is not all that expensive, 5 to $10 per ton probably.
0: Pratima, OGCI is not just working in the UK. You've also been doing projects in the US where there is a policy mechanism already in place, unlike many other countries, What's your experience been there? What are the opportunities and the challenges presented by having these policy mechanisms supported by the government?
4: It's a great question. The U.S. is the first to put an overarching policy across the country, and it's called the 45Q. In fact, in 2022, with the new Biden administration, what they call the IRA, the new legislation, this... Um, Enhanced 45Q is excellent. It gives gives a pricing for the price of carbon, whether it's stored or whether it's used in EOR, enhanced with recovery. And this enhanced 45Q would quadruple the number of economic projects that we can actually see in the United States. So this is tremendous and it really, and it's also, when you think about it, it's a tax credit. We, those of us who worked in wind in the past, or in solar projects, already know how to use these tax credits. They're production tax credits. The system exists to use them. Banks know what to do. So
0: I think it's fantastic. Sarah, you were telling us earlier about the the costs of CCS, especially because of the carbon sequestration aspect, anything from $20 to $80 or more per tonne. Now, some U.S. states have introduced incentives, direct subsidies, haven't they? Has that had the desired effect?
3: I think part of the reason that we're seeing a lot of activity in uh, CCS and a lot of announced projects now in the United States is due to um, a couple of things. One is a federal tax incentive called 45Q. And what this incentive does is gives the capture facility $85 per ton for any CCS or any CO2 that is captured and stored in a geologic formation. And then in California, California has a low carbon fuel standard, which um, any and, and a CCS protocol is associated with that and basically what that allows is uh, any CCS project that ends up resulting in a decarbonized fuel that's used for transportation. Um, is eligible for the LCFS credit. Now this credit varies in its value because it's an open um, market basically. Um, it's been as high as two $200 per ton. Um, it's been as low as sort of in the 20s and right now it's around $100 a ton or so. And so what that is spurring is a lot of activity in California, but also outside California. Because for example, if there's an ethanol plant in another state that has a CCS project and um, captures the CO2 and injects the CO2 even in that other state, but that the um, resulting ethanol um, goes to um, um, into is blended into a fuel that is eventually sold in California, then that whole project is also eligible for the LCFS credit. So things like that are spurring activity, not just in California, but in other states as well.
4: I think there are a lot of countries, especially in Europe, and again, I think in the Middle East, who are considering different mechanisms. The mechanisms have never been the same worldwide. For example, the US has always used tax credits for their um, solar and wind projects, but Europe has used something called a feed-in tariff. It is not just about the money, it is about the myriad regulatory issues we face, not just federally, but in every single state. So if you're a project developer, you are running around trying to figure out how to get Certifications for your wells, how to get land that you can use. There's a million little and big pieces that they have to go through. And it is extremely slow. It is extremely bureaucratic. And we are seeing projects going much too slow. So, if I had to, you know, kind of tell you a little bit about our learnings, one is collaboration is still key, what we learned in the UK. But in addition to that, price points, commerciality is absolutely key, we need that. But third is that the government needs to make things streamlined and effective. We are in an emergency situation in terms of both energy security as well as climate. We cannot spend our time spinning our wheels. So Jared, um,
0: the Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute has been banging the drum for carbon capture for a good while what arguments do you use to try and persuade governments to help the industry to get over these really quite stubborn costs?
1: Yeah. So, you know, our main focus um, in our new strategy over the next five years, since I joined eight months ago, is to focus on that advocacy role, right? To advocate to policymakers and government, to leaders in industry, and to really reach out to the financial sector and hopefully have them embrace CCS as part of that, all of the above solution and help invest in CCS as a, as a you know, climate change mitigation technology that all the math says we need. It's the only technology available to give you that deep decarbonization in those hard to abate industry sectors like cement and steel and in fertilizers that we've already discussed here on the program. It enables that production of low carbon hydrogen at scale. And you can do that now at economics that work in many jurisdictions today start to build out that infrastructure that will allow hydrogen to grow as a larger and larger part of that decarbonization strategy in many regions and countries and as you know renewable sourced hydrogen continues to uh, be driven down uh, by reductions in the cost of electrolyzers you know, that, those hydrogen sources um, can sort of plug and play in the infrastructure that you could, again, begin now um, fueled by uh, hydrogen produced in an integrated fashion with CCS. It also can help firm um, some of the variable renewable power in the stationary power sector and help decarbonize, you know, dispatchable power. Sources as well that are the stability and resiliency and reliability of our, our stationary power grids are going to require uh, going into the future. CCS um, is one of these engineered solutions that can deliver negative emissions, right? Direct air capture, uh, bioenergy with CCS, um, and to really give you those terms where we can effectively pull CO2 added, out of the atmosphere, store it responsibly in the subsurface from where it came, right? And CCS is a critical component um, if that's part of our. Our future path as well.
0: Aramco has been researching ways to reuse CO2 in other industries, for instance accelerate concrete production. Has there been any interest from the concrete industry, the building industry?
2: Yeah, Indeed we have been researching for the use of CO2 for concrete curings at large scale for quite some time, but over the recent years we have built enough confidence to engage with local uh, cement producers uh, in, uh, uh, in a discussion uh, to look at ways to scale up the technology. It's very exciting because as you may know, water is uh, scarce in Saudi Arabia and concrete curing actually is using CO2 instead of water. So this would save a lot of energy while also providing uh, better uh, uh, mechanical resistant uh, uh, carbon cured uh, concrete uh, and also storing CO2 permanently
0: so let me just interrupt you, Dijani. By doing this, you actually reduce the energy that's used to cure the concrete, as well as burying a whole lot of carbon dioxide.
2: We avoid using water for the for the curing. We reduce the amount of cement for making the concrete, and we save also energy during the concrete concrete process. And actually, using CO two for the concrete curing is a much faster. Uh, process compared to uh, curing uh, concrete with uh, with, uh, with with water. Uh, so uh, again, this is very exciting. But we don't stop there because we look at all ways to make value from CO2, and uh, because we believe this is uh, extremely important and this is in the heart of the circular carbon economy, which we believe is a very effective way of uh, managing uh, emissions and we're looking at uh, how to make how to capture co2 from air and then produce synthetic fuels that could help decarbonize hard to elevate sectors such as uh, uh, aviation and shipping and uh, many others we're looking at how to develop new generation of catalysts and processes for using co2 to make uh, polymers and a variety of uh, of chemicals i think if you look at the co2 utilization prospect Uh, 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 there is a potential to avoid uh, billions tons of CO2 uh, by 2050 if the technology is there.
0: And are we seeing these emerging, Jared? We hear about hubs, CCUS hubs in hard to tackle sectors. I mean, not just cement and concrete, but steel, chemicals, fertilizers. Are these actually happening in any meaningful way?
1: Yeah, they are. We 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 see the rise of CCS hubs and clusters or networks taking off globally. Um, it's it's led by uh, many countries around the North Sea and the European uh, region, uh, and in the UK. in specific has some government policy tools that have incentivized you know the formation of hubs and clusters to capture from multiple uh, point sources that are located in, in close proximity and then responsibly store those and, and utilize shared uh, transport and storage infrastructure. Um, and so this is you know the networks are a way that we can capture from many point sources and get the economy of scale that's required to, again, uh, achieve our, our goals in terms of the amount of, of CO2 that's, that's captured and stored across a number of these carbon-intensive industries. We also see the rise of uh, conversation around CO2 shipping, so not just moving CO2 that you've captured uh, by pipelines across land, but how can you move that through shipping um, to most economically and, and uh, efficiently uh, connect capture point sources to the best geologic storage opportunities or utilization opportunities.
0: So, but what about the transport issues? How difficult is that, Jared?
1: You know, in terms of CO2 pipeline transport is a mature industry. And for example, in the United States, we've got 70 or 80 million ton per annum of CO2 that's moved uh, in in throughout our country historically through a network of over 7,000 kilometers of CO2 pipeline that are dedicated uh, towards CO2 transport. a new area that the CCS community globally is looking into is the role of shipping to help connect point sources of CO2 and appropriate uh, storage locations globally, part of the hubs and clusters or CO2 networks uh, discussion that we had earlier.
0: I'm going to throw a question to all of you, really. What do we really need to see to make CCS and CCUS into a reality, to turn promise into reality? And is it gonna happen this decade?
1: So I'll I'll jump in and and start the conversation there. And I think, you know, the answer is it's not a one size fits all solution to getting CCS uh, to accelerate its deployment and scale globally to the level that that all the climate math says is required. There's a role for government to play in setting uh, national climate strategies and plans that explicitly include the role and define the role of carbon capture, utilization and storage and carbon dioxide removal um, and, and clearly communicate those targets. Um, there's a need to create long-term high value, right, economic value of um, preventing that CO2 from increasing uh, you know, concentrations in the atmosphere, and create value on the storage of CO2 in the subsurface. Um, there's a need to identify um, the geologic storage resources around the world where this is the, the most uh, efficient and economical and, and safe and secure. Some countries still need to develop specific laws and regulations, which is a government function to do. If we're going to get CCS to scale, Um, This requires leadership from industry, from all these industries we've been talking about, to make those investments, to lean forward, to learn by doing and help drive down those costs through uh, government-supported R&D to continue to improve the efficiency and and cost-effectiveness of all the, the, the carbon capture storage technologies.
0: Is it going to take off, do you think? Will we be talking about it very differently by 2030?
1: Well, I certainly hope so, because if not, then um, we're even more woefully behind where we need to be in terms of our climate mitigation uh, strategies. And, and I think that's one of the largest societal uh, issues that we're all working on uh, together. Um, but again, it's gonna take us all working together um, to get this to scale.
2: I just want to add to what Gerard said that, you know we have, to get, we have to get it to scale because otherwise uh, we will delay the uh, reach of net zero in the second half of this century. So uh, CCS is not an option; is a must-have. Uh, this decade is going to be extremely critical for CCS. Uh, we do have a very good pipeline, but again, that falls very short against you know the IA Sustainable Development Scenario, in which we have to capture and store around 650 million tons of CO2 by 2030. There are many uh policies being tested in north america in europe and also in the middle east that proved to be very effective in scaling up ccs through uh, ccs hub i just want to make one important point uh, in my view which is that historically we have been looking at ccs project as vertically integrated where an emitter will capture co2 build the pipeline infrastructure for the transport and also uh, uh, store the CO2 underground in ge- geological formations. So if you look at the diversity of the industry we have in our economies, most of them, they don't have background or expertise in geological formations or how to inject CO2 underground. So this is why the concept of CCS hub is very powerful because it's decoupled the capture with the transport and storage. So each industry will focus on what it can do. We'll just focus on uh capturing uh, uh co2 and there will be a specialized company uh for the co2 transport and storage so that's provide a lot of flexibility on the way we look at uh, 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 ccs so but at the same time also it calls for government to be innovative on the solutions because rewarding a co2 capture facility which is extremely costly uh, compared to transport and storage will require a complete set of policies compared to CO2 storage, and also making sure that the CO2 remain underground for a long period of, uh, of time. Uh, but again, you know, I want to just to stress that, you know, this decade is going to be extremely critical for the CCS industry. I strongly believe that we'll get, it, we'll get the job done because the more we delay CCS, the harder it will be to get to net zero.
0: So as you said earlier, Pratima, we are in an emergency situation. We have no time to lose. So when are we going to see carbon capture taking off, really getting lift off and having a real impact on emissions? What needs to happen to get there? Well, I think a couple of things. And, And we talked about
3: it
4: a little bit in the context of the United States and the United Kingdom. We have to get to a point when you're trying to take new technologies and get them off the ground. And this technology has been around for a long time. We have to stop calling it new. We know how to use it, right? The oil and gas operators, service providers, they know how to provide the pieces of it. We just need to move along. And so it is really time to end the talking. Whether it is a country, policymaker, region, we need to put the policies in place to get it going. Tell us how long it's going to last. We'll bring the cost up. Private industry has never had a problem innovating, but you can't just come up with experiments and R&D, things to be, to be able to put in the ground to actually you know, get the cost down on a per unit basis. So the help that governments give in terms of policy aspects doesn't have to live forever. But in the short term, we need to see effective policies that allow projects to be economic, once the economic, we need to take all, we need to take all these other roadblocks, regulatory roadblocks off the table and let the private sector run. But in order to achieve all this, we come back to the original, which is we need to listen to each other. We could teach each other how to move fast, as I described in the UK context, and we've got to let everybody come to the table. This is our earth, this is our global problem. Every one of us has skill sets to support and help. We need to stop picking and choosing just our way as the right way. Get to the table, get to negotiations and get to practical solutions and let them fly. We will make some mistakes, but standing in, in our spot and not moving is the largest mistake we can make today.
0: Sarah Salter, all of you are converts really to CCS and CCUS, you, Jared, Vijani, Pratima. What will it take to turn it from something which is relatively on the fringes to bring it into the mainstream.
3: I think it's gonna require incentives. And I think these incentives are gonna have to be both regulatory and financial. And it's also gonna require um, a lot of cooperation between all different kinds of parties. So for example, in the US we're seeing the DOE, the Department of Energy, um, they've always been supporting CCS and supporting demonstration projects. But we've just seen recently this year, um, a lot more uh, funding toward uh, CCS projects. And we are absolutely gonna need that going forward. But it's not just the Department of Energy. We need to be working closely with the industrial emitters Um, who need to be working closely with the potential transport companies or the pipeline companies, as well as those that understand geologic sequestration or the utilization of CO2, and getting all those parties to talk and work together. And then an important thing that we haven't discussed yet is also community engagement, especially when it comes to, well, not just the capture and the transport, but especially on the sequestration site, we're gonna be developing some sequestration projects that um, communities are concerned about. And so we need to um, get them involved and get them involved early. Um, so that they're willing to support the projects.
0: Dr. Sarah Soltzer, Pratima Rangarajan, Tijani Neas, and Jared Daniels, thank you for joining me to discuss the possibilities of carbon capture. The key question is whether efficient, cost effective CCUS can be developed at scale to accelerate the energy transition in time to help us reach our net zero goals. In the next edition of Powered by How, we'll be discussing what role. Big data and AI could play in improving efficiency and reducing carbon emissions in the energy sector. Join me, Nisha Pele, for Powered by How, Big Data, AI, and the energy solutions of tomorrow. This podcast has been brought to you by Reuters Plus in partnership with Aramco.